0: All right, you, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter one. Uh, we're, we, we looked at Revelation. We started this series on Revelation last week. We looked at verses one through eight. Uh, and what John said in those verses g- helped us get our bearings, right, for this book on how we ought to, to go about reading and obeying this book together. We just talked about verse three and how it's, there's a call. It's not just something we understand. It's something we, we respond to as followers of Christ. This morning, we're gonna be finishing out Chapter 1, by looking at verses 9 through 20, you'll find those verses on page 1089 if you're using one of our black CSB Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to encourage you to grab one of those and then take it home after you use it here today and keep using it, okay? God's Word is, is, is our life. Uh, it, it, is, it is what leads us in this life. It's what sustains us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't go without it so I don't want you to be without one. Uh, so I want to encourage you to take that home with you if you if you uh, need a Bible. In these verses, 9 through 20, John's going to give us a glimpse of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. And that vision then will help us get our bearings on how we ought to live with hope-filled endurance through the hard things of our lives. And so I want us to hear clearly God's word from God's spirit. And so I want to pray for help as uh, as God's uh, man today to preach this word to you and, and to my own heart. And so I want to I ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll dig in together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. May we hear your word, may we obey your word, for the glory of your Son and the good uh, of our hearts, of our lives, that we might be conformed together, not just by ourselves, but together together into this beautiful uh, image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, last week I started off uh, in kind of a fun way, a little bit, little bit more exciting way. Started off by listing a bunch of, of mysterious and, and fascinating things that we are going to see in the book of Revelation, right? These are, these are things that sort of pique our intrigue and, and sort of get us anticipating and, and excited about what we're going to get into Today, however, I want to I want to start by listing off some things that really none of us are excited to talk about. Okay? Today I want to start by, by by listing some things that we still find mysterious, but we, we don't really find them fascinating. Instead, we find them frustrating, fatiguing, and frightening. These are all things that people in our church family are dealing with right now. Many of you know these already, multiple stays in the hospital, multiple trips back and forth to visit your loved one in the hospital, major surgery, cancer diagnosis, invasive medical tests and waiting on test results, freak accidents and broken bones, chronic physical pain and headaches, loss of a loved one, anniversaries of loved ones who have passed away, moving out of the home that you built with your husband and trying to figure out life as a widow. It's just a list of things that have happened in the past couple weeks. It's a lot, isn't it? Just in the past few weeks, we could add on top of that family strife job and financial struggles, the stresses of being a single parent or a mixed family, feelings of isolation, depression, anxiety, and I'm sure that you could add whatever you want to that list, right? The Bible has a word for things like these. It's called tribulation. In our CSB Bibles, the the Christian Standard Bible, the the translation that we use, uh, it will call it affliction. Whatever you want to call it, I think that we can all agree that none of us really wants these things in our lives, right? Nobody in here looks forward to experiencing tribulation. Nobody welcomes affliction with open arms. As one of your pastors, I don't want these things for you. We all want our suffering to end. And for those who put their hope in Christ, we know that our suffering will come to an end once and for all when he returns, but that seems so far away, doesn't it? What do we do with our suffering now? Until that day comes, our lives will be marked by affliction, and and that can be a scary thought for us. That's why we need this book of Revelation. That's why we need a heavenly perspective on our earthly pain. And here's what we're going to see from this passage this morning. Christ calls us to endure affliction without fear. That's important without fear because he is the eternal king and we are already partakers of his kingdom. Let me say that again. Christ calls us to endure affliction without fear because he is the eternal king and we are already partakers of his kingdom. I love it when the word uh, just sort of speaks for itself and lays out the outline of the sermon It's going to do that for us this morning in our passage. We're going to look at the reality of affliction, the ruler of the kingdom, and the reason to endure. The reality of affliction, the ruler of the kingdom, and the reason to endure. Let's let's dig in together. The reality of affliction, verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in, here it is, the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance. That are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me, like a trumpet, saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, we need to understand this, and probably most of you know this. John was not vacationing on the island of Patmos, right? This is a lot less like Hawaii and a lot more like Alcatraz, right? He's a prisoner here. He's in exile, uh, he's in exile on this island, And verse 9 tells us why he was exiled to Patmos. He says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Roman emperors had this habit of demanding to be worshipped as a deity, which was really kind of true of a lot of kings in a lot of ages, right? And and it was particularly true of Rome. and, And Emperor Domitian in John's day was no different. But instead of saying Domitian is Lord, what did John say? He said, Jesus is Lord right? And so he was exiled for his allegiance to Christ over Caesar. John was experiencing affliction as a follower of Christ, but he was an old man by this time, and as an apostle of Jesus, he was no stranger to being in prison because of his testimony about Jesus. You can actually read another story of him going to prison and then getting out of prison and then going to prison in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and he wasn't the only one to do that. That was characteristic of the apostles, characteristic of the early believers, the followers of Christ as the church spread in the book of Acts. He may have been exiled by Rome as a prisoner because of his testimony, but he was also commissioned here by Jesus as a prophet because of his testimony. One commentator put it this way, John has been entrusted with testifying to the revelation of the heavenly Jesus. That's who we're going to see the heavenly Jesus, because he had been faithful in witnessing to the revelation of the earthly Jesus. John was a disciple of Christ. He was an apostle sent out by Christ, given the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He walked with Jesus on this earth and he testified that this Jesus was God himself. And now he gets to testify that the God he sees is Jesus himself just as the Holy Spirit did with the prophets of the Old Testament. He put John in a trance-like state, and he prepared John to receive these revelatory visions from God. That's when John heard a loud voice behind him, like a trumpet, tell him to write down on a scroll everything that he saw and then send it to the seven churches. John addressed these churches in verse 9 when he said, I'm your brother and your partner in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. We'll get to the kingdom, we'll get to endurance here in a minute, but first let's not overlook the reality that John was not the only one who was afflicted here, right? The word partner here could also be translated as fellow partaker, John was writing to brothers and sisters in Christ who were also experiencing affliction because of their affiliation with Jesus. These were churches that were, that were going through tribulation, through affliction, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We'll learn more about their specific afflictions as we go through chapters 2 and 3. But when we remember that, that the number 7 is, has a, a symbolic importance in the book of Revelation, and we see Jesus telling John to to write to the seven churches, and that, that number represents fullness or completion. The mention of these seven churches here reminds us that Christ's universal church on earth is marked by suffering. We don't really want to hear that, do we? We are fellow partakers partners with one another and with Christ in his afflictions. But that shouldn't come as a surprise to us, should it? Because in John's gospel, we heard Jesus promise that his disciples would share in his sufferings, right? Do you remember John 15, 20 and 21? Jesus said, remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what did he say? They'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. Like, there's a promise there. There's hope there, too. But he didn't exclude the persecution. Jesus said, but they will do all these things to you on account of my name. John, your partner in the affliction that is in Jesus Christ. They will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Now, it's, difficult, it's not difficult for us to look around and see that there is suffering all over the world. It's not just exclusive to Christians, right? We know this. But, but both Jesus and John are pointing to a kind of affliction that is unique to us as Christ, follower, as Christ followers. It's affliction by association with Jesus himself. It's hatred and persecution from the enemies of Christ because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that we proclaim. Some Christians we know will experience this kind of affliction more intensely than others, but we will all experience it to some degree because Christ himself suffered and we are his servants who are not greater than our master. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all, all, not just, not some, Not a few, not many even, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Perhaps we need to expand our understanding of what it means to be persecuted. In Acts chapter 14, after Paul was stoned by some Jews and left for dead, he got up and he kept on preaching the gospel. Man, if I I sit wrong, I'm done. He was stoned. Rocks thrown at him to put him to death. And they just, they drug him out of the city and they left him dead. And he's like, oh, I'm not dead? All right. I'll go back into that same town and I'll tell him about Jesus. He did that with Barnabas and then he got, uh, then they started, after they went to that town, they started going to other towns that they had previously preached the gospel in. And they, it says that they strengthened the disciples They were there by encouraging them to continue in the faith. Strengthened them by encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen, strengthened them by telling them, Acts 14.22, that it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul's message and John's message weren't just for first century churches. They were for the churches in every century until Christ returns. And as a church in the 21st century, we need to come to terms with the reality of affliction, affliction by affiliation with Jesus himself. We may not be put in prison. We may not be exiled on an island. We may not be stoned and left for dead. But those things that I listed off at the beginning of the sermon this morning, they're not just happenstance. These aren't just circumstantial things that, that just are, are flippantly happening in our lives. We are afflicted, and our affliction is tied directly to our affiliation with Jesus himself. And while we should be hesitant, hear me, we should be hesitant to blame everything we go through on the devil. We also need to understand that we have a very real Spiritual adversary. We'll see this in Revelation. We have a very real spiritual adversary who would love nothing more. Look, he doesn't care if we blame him or not. You know who he cares about? He would love nothing more for us to blame Jesus himself for our afflictions and walk away from him. Give up on Christ because we think that he's made life too hard for us. Endurance is required for every follower of Christ why? Because, re, re, uh, because affliction is a reality for every follower of Christ. But we're not just fellow partakers in affliction, praise God, right? We're also fellow partakers of a kingdom, and the reality of affliction pales in comparison to the ruler of the kingdom. So let's, let's fix our eyes then together on this ruler. Look at verse 12 through 16. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like bronze as it, as it has, is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now, this is important. In this book, Revelation, John will often hear one thing, and then he'll turn around and he will see something different. But that does not mean that what he sees contradicts what he hears. It actually clarifies what he's heard. He's going to hear one thing, he's going to see something different, and what he sees actually clarifies what he's heard. In verse 10, John said that he heard a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. That's a commanding voice. You ever heard a trumpet? It's a powerful voice. It's reminiscent of the scene at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 when Moses and the Israelites heard the voice of God booming, it says, like a trumpet from a cloud of thunder and lightning on the mountains. Terrifying scene, right? When the people heard it, they shuddered. But when John turned around to see whose voice it was that spoke to him, he didn't see a thick cloud of thunder and lightning. He saw a human being. One who was like him. A man walking among seven golden lampstands But then we get to the description of this man, and we see this is no ordinary man. John said this one was like the son of man. This is a reference to Daniel 7. We talked about this a little bit last week. Daniel had this vision of one who was like a son of man. Daniel was saying, "This, this this is a human that I see in this vision. But he's being escorted up to the throne of the Ancient of Days, God himself. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You see, the son of man in Daniel's vision is the son of man whom John saw walking among these seven golden lampstands. The loud voice like a trumpet that John heard belonged to Jesus Christ himself. But John's description of Jesus here is not something that we are used to, is it? See, we often picture Jesus as the afflicted one, right? Because that's how we see him portrayed in the Gospels. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah, isn't he? He's the one who was persecuted and wrongfully arrested. He was the one who was beaten and mocked and humiliated and crucified. He was the one who was buried in a tomb. We know he rose from that tomb, but chances are when we picture Jesus, we see a man whose hair was matted red with blood from a crown of thorns, not white as wool. We see a man whose eyes were filled with tears as he wept for his people. Not fire coming out of them. Man whose feet were pinned to a cross by an iron nail, not feet like bronze fired in a furnace. Whose voice was strained through a parched throat, not a voice like cascading waters. Whose hands were pierced with nails, not holding stars. Whose side had a spear thrust into it, not a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Whose face fell dark as the light of life went out of his body not shining like the sun at full strength. See, we aren't used to seeing Jesus the way that John described him here, but you know who has seen Jesus this way before? John. John, in Matthew 17, in in Mark uh, 9, in Luke, I, I don't remember the chapter, but all three of those talk about where Jesus takes John, Peter, and James up high on a mountain, and he's transfigured before them. In Matthew's account, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. You see, John beheld the glorified Christ up on that mountain and he was beholding the same glorified Jesus right here. But he's not giving a literal description of Jesus here. John is writing in similes. He uses words like like and as all over this. One commentator helpfully said that John wasn't showing us what Jesus looks like here, but rather that what Jesus is like here. I think that's a helpful distinction. John was symbolically conveying the nature and the work of this Jesus. And so what is Jesus like according to this description? Well, his robe shows him to be a high priest. His golden sash shows him to be a king. His white hair shows that he is more than just a man. He's God himself, full of omniscient wisdom. The Ancient of Days is described as having hair white as wool in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus' fiery eyes show him to be a righteous judge who sees everything as it is. His feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace show him to be a firm foundation of moral purity and strength. He's been tested by fire and he himself has endured. His voice like cascading waters shows that he commands attention and cannot be ignored. You ever stood by a waterfall and tried to talk some to somebody? The seven stars in his right hand show his heavenly authority. The double-edged sword coming from his mouth shows how his word cuts to the heart the book of Hebrews tells us this, doesn't it? Both to comfort and to convict, to proclaim salvation and judgment. It cuts both ways. His shining face shows his radiant glory that will never diminish or fade, like the glory that was on Moses' face faded. This is the exalted view of Jesus that we need, isn't it? Is this not our king? Is this not the same Jesus who who was persecuted and crushed on a cross, buried in a tomb, but rose from the grave and ascended into heaven? This is who rules the kingdom that we are partakers of as believers. The only problem, though, is that if we were confronted, like we can read about this, right, and sort of imagine it in our mind, but if we were confronted face-to-face with this magnitude of glory, As John was, we would do exactly what John did. You know what he did? Verse 17 tells us. First part, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When John was confronted with the unmitigated glory of Christ here, he did what he and Peter and James did when they saw Christ transfigured on the mountain. They fell face down in terror. This is a common response throughout the Bible for anyone who came face to face with God in the fullness of his glory. Remember Isaiah the prophet in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. We're going to see the same throne room in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. When Isaiah saw it, he immediately cried out, Woe is me! I'm ruined! because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. When Isaiah was confronted with God's holiness, he was also confronted with his own unholiness. And he knew that he could not stand before this God and live unless God himself intervened. You see, whenever God reveals who he really is, he also reveals who we really are. And like like it did for Isaiah and John, God's glory reveals us as ruined people in need of God's intervention if we're going to live. There's no other way to respond. In a moment of honesty, though, we might admit that we often respond to our affliction the way that John responded to Jesus here. We feel overwhelmed by it. We feel ruined by it. We collapse at the feet of affliction like a dead man while we boldly question God about his goodness and wisdom. But Jesus is the exalted king of glory. He's the exalted king of glory. He is the always good and all wise God. And he calls us to endure affliction, not to be overcome by it. And in these last few verses, he reveals the reason to endure Look at the second part of verse 17 with me through the end here. He laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you've seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see, the fiery eyes of Jesus had penetrated deep into John's soul, and John had nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. He was undone by the glory of God, and yet he was not consumed by it. He was undone by it, but he was not consumed by it because the hand that held the seven stars reached out and held John too. And as the risen and exalted Jesus Christ laid his right hand on John, the voice that had been like a trumpet, the voice that had been like the sound of the cascading waters became like a gentle stream. You know what he said? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, look at me, John. John. forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Can a ruined person hear sweeter words than those? Notice what Jesus didn't say to John. He didn't say, hey, don't be afraid. He said that, but he didn't say, I've come to get you off this island. I've come to Rescue you from prison. You don't have to suffer anymore. He didn't say those things. No, what did he say? John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, not even of death. Because I've already rescued you from its grip by placing you in mine. John wasn't ruined because John was redeemed. God himself had intervened. You see, Jesus died so that John could live, but Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? No, he conquered death through his death and his resurrection, and now he's alive forever and ever. The living one doesn't just hold the seven stars in his right hand, and he doesn't just hold John in his right hand. He says it right here. He also holds the keys of death and Hades in his right hand. Why? Why? He's the first and the last. That means that he is the one. Jesus is the one who decides how long we live and where we go when we die. Think about how encouraging these words must have been for John to hear as he was in exile on the island of Patmos. That Jesus didn't say, Hey, I'm going to come and fix the current situation you're in. He said, No, I have everything under control. Trust me. Don't be afraid. Think about how encouraging it must have been for the seven churches to hear as they endured intensifying persecution and suffering from Rome. Church, these words of Jesus should be tremendously reassuring to us too in all the things that we are going through. Remember what Jesus promised back in chapter 10 of John's gospel? John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. Whether you hear it like a trumpet or cascading waters, or gentle shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That means that even though Jesus is the one who opens death's door, guess what he does for us? He closes and locks the gates of hell, and he opens wide the gates of heaven. To give eternal life to all who trust in him. Our earthly lives may come to an end. They probably will before Jesus returns. But listen, we will never perish. We will never perish. Because the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who holds John, holds you and me too. So we have a reason to endure our afflictions even to the point of death if that's what is required of us because death will never be able to hold us the way that our risen and exalted king holds us. This is what the therefore is there for in verse 19. Jesus was essentially telling John, hey, because I'm alive forever and ever, because I hold the keys of death and Hades, write down everything that I'm about to show you, things that have already begun to take place since my death and resurrection and things that will take place when I return. And the rest of the book is Jesus' way of laying his hand on his followers in every generation and telling us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm in control. And I love you. I've got you. This reassurance is only for those who've fallen at his feet in desperate dependence upon his grace and mercy. You see, it's only for those who've been undone by the glory Of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ and have come to the end of themselves. Does that describe you this morning? If not, it can. And I hope it does before you leave here. Right now, as you're hearing these words come out of my mouth, you can come to Christ Himself. The fiery eyes of Jesus have already seen all your sin and guilt, you have nowhere to hide this is the beauty of the king of glory, is that he displays his glory by extending his abundant grace. Even though he sees you as you are, he comes to you and he lays his hand on you and says, don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust me. His fiery eyes may have seen all your sin and guilt, but it's his broken body and crucified body that provided the pardon for us, for all who come to him and humbly confess their need for his forgiveness. Again, in John chapter 6, John's gospel, Jesus promised, "I I won't turn anybody away who comes to me. Why would you turn that down? Jesus won't turn away. Please don't turn away from him. Why don't you put your trust in him this morning? Come to the living one, confess your need for him and feel the touch of his hand to give you life. As those to whom the doors of eternal life have been opened by our risen and exalted king, we've already become partakers of his kingdom. We've talked about this before, right? We live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. It was inaugurated at Christ's death and resurrection. It'll be completed, consummated at, at his return. We see aspects of it here imperfectly, but the perfect is coming. We've already become partakers in his kingdom, but until that kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, which is what we pray, right? It will be characterized here by endurance through affliction because that's what our king's life was characterized by when he lived on this earth. But we can endure affliction while we wait for the kingdom to come because the king is already with us. He's coming again for us, but he's also here with us. Only God can do that. Jesus told John here that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that John was writing to, the seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. Now, that Greek word for, uh, that gets translated as angels here can also be translated as messengers. Some people take this to refer to the pastors of the seven churches. But if we look in Revelation, that same Greek word is used about 60 more times, and all those times it's referred to uh, a heavenly being. One commentator suggests that the picture that Jesus was giving here through these symbols was of the church that is in heaven and the church that is on earth. Think about that for a minute. When God gave Moses the the blueprints for the temple, for the tabernacle, what was he going by? The heavenly one. When God gives us instructions for the earthly church, What do you think he's going by? The heavenly one. The reality of the already and the not yet. John is going to address these churches through these angels, this commentator says, to remind the believers of the already of their heavenly existence. Doesn't Paul use this language in Colossians 3? If you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the throne, right hand of the Father. There's a reality that we can't see. Revelation is going to pull the curtain back for us and help us see that. I find that to be a helpful picture here. One thing is certainly clear from this passage. Jesus is among the lampstands and he holds the stars in his right hand that means that he's not somewhere else while we suffer our afflictions he's right here helping us endure them church he's present with us he's in us how is christ present with his church through his holy spirit and where does his holy spirit dwell in his people right that means then that if we want to experience christ's presence with us in our affliction We need to invite our brothers and sisters in Christ into that affliction with us to help us endure the things that we suffer through. We are partners, fellow partakers in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus Christ. We're not meant to endure alone. So what does it look like for us to hear and obey these words in verses 9 through 20? Well, for some of us, it looks like asking for help from your church family. For others, it looks like responding to that ask and jumping in to help people in our church family. For me personally, I know that I need to hold on to this exalted view of Jesus, this risen and glorified Christ. Maybe you need to do the same. God knows that we need this view, so he'll give it to us multiple times in the book of Revelation. Maybe for you, hearing and obeying these words means that you need to expand your prayers beyond asking God to change your circumstances, and maybe you need to start asking him to change you, even if your circumstances don't change. Maybe hearing and obeying these words means that you need to remember that our afflictions are temporary and our king is eternal, Maybe it means that you need to let your fear of death be subdued by the love and power of the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Maybe hearing and obeying these words means that you need to relinquish your need to be in control of your life and entrust yourself to the one who is the first and the last. Maybe it means that you stop trying to avoid affliction and start enduring it. The power of the Holy Spirit as a partaker of Christ's kingdom. You see, Christ calls us to endure affliction without fear because he is the eternal king and we are already partakers of his kingdom. And until his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, our lives will be marked by affliction. But listen, our our citizenship in heaven, as heirs of the kingdom, you know what that will be marked by? Endurance. Endurance through the afflictions that we face. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's live then as partners, as fellow partakers in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus. He is the first and the last. He is the living one. He was dead, but look, he's alive forever and ever, and he holds the keys of death in Hades. So may the glory of our risen and exalted king subdue every fear that remains in our hearts because he is with us, church, he holds us, and no affliction, not even death itself, can snatch us from his hand. Father, we thank you for your word of hope. We thank you for your word that helps us be honest about the things that we face. It helps us do that by seeing the reality of who Christ is right now. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, not just individually, but corporately as a church, that we might be partners, fellow partakers in the affliction, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we pray that you would come. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us by your power until that happens or until you bring us face to face with the one whose face shines like the sun in all its fullness where we will not tremble in fear but we will run into the wide open arms of the one who's rescued us. We love you and we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.